bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. If I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your way. I'm a black man in a white world. 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 Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. One thing in life, if you live long enough, that you will do over and over again is recreate yourself there is a new movie about george foreman and how he recreated himself well we won't be talking about george foreman but i will be talking to a close friend about how he has recreated himself several times here next on the jb's low-tech podcast in pennsylvania a teenage girl that was about to turn 18 was driving her brand new car home when she looked down to check a text message and struck a tree killing herself and injuring a friend in the car the average message takes 4.6 seconds to create hi i'm mike bryant from bradshaw and bryant please don't drive while intoxicated or allow your friends and family to do so no text message or phone call is worth dying for Find Mike Bryant at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Mike Bryant, seeking justice for the injured. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. And as I stated earlier, the movie about George Foreman got me thinking about recreating oneself. And then it made me think about a friend of mine who has done it several times successfully. And I thought, why not have him? And today I'll have my old, another one of my old college roommates, Alan Link Johnson to the program, and we'll talk about how he's recreated himself. How you doing, Link? I'm doing good. Always trying to do good. That's <laughs> my first model. <laughs> but other than that, you know how everything else goes. Yeah, well, that's called life, correct? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so... You and I go back to college days at the University of Minnesota, but I want to go back even further and uh, <laughs> and and something I didn't know until recently. You weren't you were not born here. You were born somewhere else. Uh, where were you born? I was born here. Oh, okay. I was born in Minneapolis. Teresa was born. My wife was right. born in. Canada, Edmonton. She's a Air Force brat. Okay. No, I thought you were born in Seattle, or was it? Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. no we, we were born here. All, all, right. all of my siblings in uh, Minneapolis. And uh, your dad? What did your dad do? My dad. He was. Uh, he worked for Sperry Univac. Okay. Uh, he was. Kind of one of the pioneers or uh, 
as, as far as African-Americans with the company. And he was like uh, uh, electronic electrician, uh, electrician or so. He built a lot of the parts for Spiri. Okay. Or he he uh, he kind of created a lot of the circuits, and he kind of also with the remember the old tab machines that yeah. you had to put the tabs. In, and <laughs> I can't remember the name. He devised a uh, 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 object or something uh, that prevented cards from going in the wrong slot, and he did that for the Pentagon and stuff. And he had a holy. I think he had about. About 14, 15 patents. Okay. But he, according to my mom and my, his brothers, my uncles, he probably had a whole lot more. But they would, uh, at the time, he was the only black guy out there. And they didn't uh, promote him as much, but they stole a lot of his ideas. Right. The night white watchman actually told us, or told my mom, about how they would come in after he would leave work and steal his ideas and then present them as their own. <laughs> and he, wow. he couldn't really argue as much. But right. that was the earlier years when he first started. He started there in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. But he said it did get better later on in his career. So, Well, I always, when we were roommates, uh, and I know he didn't... Cr- he wasn't the first person to do it, but I always said he he created uh, free cable. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. When he actually, if, if we have time, he sure he had. Uh, he was born and raised in Duluth, Minnesota, mm-hmm. and there were few black families up there at the time. And it was during World War II. He could see where they lived. He could see some of the. Uh, uh, Navy vessels out to the, uh, you know, on the Lake Superior. Yeah. And he devised, he took the home radio and all the parts, and he started communicating with the ships out wow. <laughs> on the lake, yeah. which confused the Navy. This, <laughs> this is when he was probably 13, 14 years old, which confused the Navy and my uh, grandmother told us that the FBI came to their house looking for his device, <laughs> and they finally destroyed it, took it and destroyed it. So he he was a whip with electronics. He could right. figure out anything possible. Well, why didn't they just uh, did uh, did the uh, military claim? Um, Claim some of his devices as their property over the no, years. No, I don't know. They just confiscated it because it was interfering with the transmission <laughs> with the Navy. They didn't know if it was, you know, the uh, the uh, Germans or the Japanese or whatever. <laughs> right. And it, and then he had a call. He had a call letter. He say he would say, "This is MEX," <laughs> or <laughs> like they couldn't figure out what Max was, which his name was Maxwell. So right. It was kind of interesting. I didn't get all those brains, though. <laughs> I didn't get them at all. <laughs> no, I just, like I said, I just recall him. Right. Uh, 
dealing with the oh. cable box somehow, and we right. were, we were yeah. able always to see uh, WrestleMania for free. And right, different right. Things, so. He he would figure out everything, everything electronically. He could that was transmitted. He could figure out a way to intercept <laughs> those communications. <laughs> So why did I think there was something in your background about Seattle? I know you're a Seattle Seahawks oh, fan. That's that's the reason. Okay. That's the reason. And actually, that, that happened when uh, Thomas, I think, was there and uh, Ronald Booker, and we were playing cards, and we took a bet. Uh, uh, I can't remember the year, but Seattle was playing uh, Miami in the uh, – uh, I don't know, before Divisional, before yeah. they played Oakland. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were down, I believe, and I took a bet from them, $50, which is a lot back, you know. Oh, yeah, when you're in school. Year, <laughs> a piece, Ronald and, <laughs> and Thomas, that Seattle would win. And they were like, oh, you're crazy, you're crazy. And Seattle won, and they had to give me $50 a piece. And then uh, from there on, I just stayed as, you know, a Seahawks fan. <laughs> uh, that's, how I, that's my connection with Seattle. Oh, okay. I, I, I thought, for some reason, I thought you were born there. But, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you and I met in college. Right. Do you recall how we even met? <laughs> well, it was either the African-American Center or it was the rec sports basketball theme. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, I think we played together or something like that. That's how we developed our relationship there. Yeah. And then eventually <laughs> became roommates. Roommates. Yeah. I had a, one summer in an overstuffed uh, one bedroom apartment because I came, oh, yeah. <laughs> I came back home. Uh, I was supposed to have been gone for the summer, and I came back right. home because the job I took for the summer didn't have hot food or hot. Uh, it was a summer camp for youth, and it didn't have hot food or hot showers. And I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> so right. I came. I came back home and worked somewhere for the summer. But um, yeah, and then that next fall, uh, you Thomas. And I, right. and then we added Van, moved into right. a, uh, a house. It was late. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, moved into a house over in South Minneapolis, and that's where right. things have, right. have grown since. Um, but after college, you decided to become a um, Minneapolis fireman. What got you down that road? I had a. Uh... I had a internship with the Minneapolis Civil Rights Department. Yeah. And my job was to find other people's jobs. Okay. And this thing about the fire department came across. And I was like, well, you know, why why am I telling everybody else to go? <laughs> I, well, I try it out. <laughs> you know, I kept reading the, descript the description, you know, they right. were talking about the benefits and, uh, you know, how many days you work, the 24-hour shifts. And, you know, it sounded intriguing, you know. Uh, so I took, filled out an application, uh, took the test with 
I believe it was like 2,800 other people at the time. And mm-hmm. I got some help from a guy, his name was Ricky Campbell. He put on a class at the uh, at one of the centers. And we kind of figured out a way how to, you know, work the test mm-hmm. the best. Right. I got a lot of practice on that. And that improved my score. And I came out, I think, in the mid-20s or something like that, ranked out of the 2,800. Right. And then they, the first class was 30, took the interview, and got hired. Mm. It wasn't really planned, but right. <laughs> it was a good avenue. Well, and it was a good benefit after that. Right. Well, and actually, you talked some of the rest of us into taking the exam, but we were yeah, all. We were all. It, was, it was a fantastic job. Anybody who's interested, you know, who right. who's up to the challenge. The job is not for everybody. But the work schedule, you work 24 hours, uh, you know, shifts. Mm-hmm. You work a total of about 10 days a month. And you have over 20-some days of vacation. So you factor out, you're working less than half the year. Right. You know, and in the 24 hours, you're not up for 24 hours, depending on what station you're at. So, right. you know, and you're not running every minute of the day. So it was that's what kind of attracted me. And then plus, you know, helping the community and then, you know, being able to, you know, there was a lot of challenges with the job, too. Well, I was, I was just about to ask you about that because, you know, I had several friends who uh, retired from police forces around the country. Right. And they always tell me the biggest worry is was walking into a dis, uh, domestic dispute. Right, uh, right. For a fireman, what would be the big issues for you, for you guys going walking into something? Well, uh, it would be mostly a fire, you know, a house fire, builder right. fire, uh, and not knowing, not reading the signs of the building, of the smoke, you know, the environment or the condition of the building, and, uh, you know, not... Uh, you know, going in maybe too far or something like that. Those were the biggest risks there. You know, not knowing where the fire's at, how hot it is, where it is, it's being ventilated. You know, those were the most challenging things there. Because uh, the environment can change very quickly on you, too. Right. And in some cases, would you guys have to provide first aid, being that you yeah. Uh, that the uh, unknown to some people or most people is that our job consists of about almost 70% of medical runs. And there, you know, we were, we have the luxury of what they call, we stage away and let the police handle on a lot of the uh, uh, difficult uh, mm-hmm. situations then they call us in. They'll, they'll give us a, what they call a code four, and we're able to go in then. So we don't run into too many scenes that are extremely dangerous, you know, as far as that, as far as medical. But they are challenging, and then, you know, they are 
there's a lot of, you know, you have to separate yourself from the event a lot of times because, you know, it is a human life. Right. And, you know, you, you can't say you have to try your best, with, but sometimes you're going to fail. You're not going to bring that person back and you just have to kind of condition yourself to understand that you did do your best if you could, you right. know, and, and those are the things that kind of stick with you there. Do, do you, do, do firemen in, in that case seek maybe uh, some therapy at that point just to, uh, when I, when I came out, it was kind of still the machismo role, you know, you kind of <laughs> okay. roll it off, yeah. you know, like, ah, you know, it doesn't bother me. But there were a couple of incidents that, you know, to this day that kind of stay with me. They're not, they don't uh, affect my day-to-day life or, you know, anything like that. But every now and then I may come across, you know, either the street or the house or, you know, the area or, right you know, a situation and those memories come up. But nowadays I know they do have a lot more services for that. Because not everyone can deal with that. You see a lot of things you don't want to see. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm quite sure you probably maybe wandered into uh, gunshot victims and suicide victims and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were over by the U, there, uh, by the Mississippi River. I did about uh, 12 years over the, in that area. Quite a few suicides you didn't want, really want to see. Right. And your heart just, your heart goes out, but you got to first try to get that person back or whatever. But it's just like, uh, you just sometimes wonder what happened to this person. Why did they do that? You know. Right to themselves and those those that's the way i would kind of think a lot those would stay with me too yeah it it seems that it would uh happen maybe once a school year that some student just couldn't take it right and just decided to end you know now they have more and more um services for students and they even even have uh, training for staff and faculty on on campus to maybe keep an eye on, on a kid that you may have con- constant contact with that right. you notice that they're not they're not right and maybe you can direct them to that service. Now, right. um, uh, so within the department, uh, what was your final rank? I ended up uh, captain of a, of a company. There's uh, a position I started out first. With, well, everyone starts out with uh, as a firefighter, and then I became a, what they call an FMO, a person who a fire mo- uh, motor operator. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that drive the rigs and either put up the ladders or uh, pump the water. And then the captain is uh, in charge of a rig, you know, like an engine or a ladder, depending on which one you are. And you'll have a crew of at least uh, a driver and a firefighter. So you're in charge of all the, uh, you know, you're in charge of the event or the scene or whatever goes on then. 
as far as medical and then fire you're initially in charge until you know a chief or someone higher ranking relieves you of your uh, uh, command um, and so then you, you continue with that until the time of retirement but before we talk about retirement let me ask you this question okay it seems like every uh, <laughs> television network has a, 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 a show dealing with the firehouse or fire fire personnel or whatnot. Right. Do you watch any of those? I I, I watch the one, it's kind of hokey, uh, emergency 911, <laughs> because none of them are really true to what they are. You know, the, okay. with firefighting, right. is if, if they actually did, actual firefighting on TV, it would be kind of boring, you right. know, because even, even going into those structures, you know, with a fire, 90% mm -hmm. of the time, you can't see nothing. You you see black and then you see orange. Orange is the fire. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you don't get to see all the furniture <laughs> right. and all the, you know, stuff and you're not walking around without, you have to be on air because you, you you can't breathe in the smoke, you know, how, how they sometimes portray that, you know. And then the, the explosions, there's not always explosions, you know, or or big fires, you know. A lot of them are sometimes small or can't contain to a, uh, a room or or to an object. So, but the, I would say you started out with the uh, station life can be difficult. Okay. If you're not with the right people. And and I was blessed by having majority of the time the right people. Yeah. With me cuz it can be a long day. Right. Well, you got <laughs> to, you you have to sleep with your fellow uh fire right. of, fire officers and and eat you have with to them. Sleep, do everything with them. Right. And if they're not, you know, whatever to your liking, you know, it can come. To, I've seen people fight over TV shows, <laughs> you know. Right. I want to watch this show. I don't like this. We're not watching baseball, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like so I was blessed by having uh, uh, a crew that were very similar, and majority of them are still friends with them. Well, that's good. Um. And you would see talking about uh, the nine one one show and other ones. Everything seems so dramatic and so overblown. Like right. there's always a building uh, right. falling down or <laughs> right. a road collapsing or right. a telephone pole hit uh, falls over. And but uh, did you work on the thirty five W bridge collapse? Yes. <clears throat> In fact, uh, uh, we were the first rig. I was on ladder three. We come from station seven, which was on, which is on uh, Cedar and Franklin. Mm -hmm. And we were responding first because it was initially it was kind of confusing uh, what exactly what it was. Was it a car accident? Then did the bridge really collapse? You know, they were, we were thinking. So there's 
They sent, uh, I think, initially like four rigs, and we all come from different directions. Right. So there was one that would be on the north side of uh, the river, and then there was one coming from downtown. They were on the west side, and we were on the east side, the southeast side of the river. We were coming from uh, Franklin that way, heading north. So that's where we ended up. So we were the first ones on that side, and we made a couple of, we were lucky. We made a couple of quick uh, rescues and recoveries right away. Right. So uh, that was good. And then the other side, I know everyone talks about that school bus. They assisted those children off the school bus on the other side. Okay. On the west side. Right. And then we had to end up fighting the fire, the truck that was wedged under the uh, southeast, uh, southwest side of the bridge. Mm-hmm. It collided into that, and then it eventually started on fire. We had to fight that fire, and then, you know, the uh, chiefs were like, uh, you know, hold up. Okay, go get it. Hold up, go get it. <laughs> so it was kind of it was kind of that kind of dilemma there. But yeah, yeah my crew. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that um, that was my my way into work because that was the exit I would take every day. Right. And for some reason, I crossed it one day and I saw all the stuff that they were putting on the bridge, like two tons of sand and right. all these vehicles and whatnot. It's like, uh, yeah. I was and like, you had stalled traffic all day long right. too. I was like, nah, let me go. a diff-. So I started going 94 to 35. Right. Home. right. And, um, to, well, yeah, just 94 and then just, uh, getting off at the Hennepin, uh, I always call it Hennepin Lindale, but that exit. Right. Um, right. But, but it was just something that just told me it was just common sense that that would happen because they just right. had too much stuff on there. Right. Actually, I had a union meeting. I was a union officer, and we were in our uh, union and city uh, negotiations for our new contract. And they're up on uh, University up Northeast, and I was coming back. And I was coming towards, I would normally take the 35 and get off on uh, Cedar Riverside. Mm-hmm. And there was too much traffic. Right. And I went across to the 10th Avenue Bridge and then down. Right. And when I got to the station, I uh, the, about 10 minutes after I arrived, that's when the alarm went off. So I could have actually maybe potentially have been on, on that bridge. bridge at the same time, <laughs> trying to get back to the station. Well, I remember having, because I had a baseball game later that evening, and having friends call and check up on me. It's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm on my way to the game. Yeah, I'm fine. Right. But I called my mother also and said, hey, you're going to hear about a bridge collapsing near the University of Minnesota. I'm fine. Right. I stopped going across it weeks ago. And she goes, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and then when 
CNN yeah. started reporting it. She calls me back. She goes, what's going on up there? And it's like, right. why didn't you think I called you? It was to let you know that it was okay. Right, right. <laughs> Actually, so. there uh, at our fire museum, it's over northeast. I don't know the exact location or address. But they have uh, a time lapse of the uh bridge collapse right they have my there's one board that has my statements on there what they interviewed me and then they they looked into the uh the uh, radio transmissions and they kind of put some of that documented some of that on there so that's cool that's up there so i gotta get back and look at it it last 15 years <laughs> so uh you continue to work and then you decide you had enough what yeah what uh what was the final straw was it anything bad or you just had enough or re- no it was kind of my time to go i had uh i had been saving in my uh, uh i think we call it something else deferred comp Mm-hmm. It's like a 401k. I yeah. Saved a lot in that. And then my pension was pretty good because I have worked a lot of overtime and stuff the year. So they take your high five on that. And then they were going to change how, when you could leave or not, at what age, you know, without taking a penalty. So I said, well, you know, I was only going to do maybe three more years. Why wait three more years? <laughs> Tell <laughs> you know, me about it. It's not going to really be that much more. I might as well go now. Right. <laughs> that was the emphasis of that. Yeah, I keep waiting for the university. The university has done that several times. I keep praying right. that they do it at least one more time <laughs> so, I can, so, right. I can, so I can get to stepping. But um, right, and all during the time you, you know you were raising your daughters and you were married, uh, you still are married to the person that you talked about in the beginning <laughs> coming right. from Canada. But she, I always referred to her at the we lived together as the fifth roommate because she. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know they they yeah. call Billy Preston the fifth Beetle. I always <laughs> called her the fifth roommate. Because she yeah, was there we, a lot, though. And we, not saying that negatively, we enjoyed Teresa's company until this day we still enjoy Oh, her. yeah. yeah. Anyone knows her, she's a blast. You right. Know. Non-stop talker, you know. <laughs> makes everyone feel good. You know, right. Whenever. And we actually been, I think, married. I'm, I'm probably going to get it wrong. <laughs> we've been married about 33 years. Right. And we've been knowing each other for over 40-some years, 40-plus years. So. Right. Uh, high school sweethearts, right? No, we met after you. Oh, okay. After high I school? Saw, I knew her in high school. Oh, okay. I never talked to her. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I again, I thought you guys were high school sweethearts. See? No, That's close. A couple of years out, I think. <laughs> My memory's failing. You have two daughters who, um, yep, who are doing good things uh, post college. Um, right. Uh, the one, yeah. one 
Taylor's a badger, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I forgive her for that. I understood the situation. She got a better deal to go uh, be a, a, a jumper at Wisconsin. Right. Well, that wasn't it because we. I, I really like Bengal a lot. Right. He, he really had us. But the only thing, if anyone knows my daughter, Taylor, she's all over the board, you know. Right. I don't know if she has ADD, but she's all over the board. And they had the study room for the athletes. And there was about, it's about, I don't know, you probably know it better. It's probably <laughs> 30 by 30. Yeah. And it had 100 people in there at the time. And I said, there's no way he's going to get anything done in this room. Well, the, uh, and Wisconsin built a new student right. center. So, right. That was the only difference. Sad thing is that into her sophomore year, we did the same thing. So, right. <laughs> um, it probably is a good thing because she probably, I've had other athletes, athletes there during time as working equipment and people I went to, I went to school with their parents and these kids would never talk to me because they were afraid that I was running to say something to their parents so oh. <laughs> so she probably would have never talked to me um oh she would have now taylor's different taylor would have probably been there every day <laughs> well even my own own son who went to the university of minnesota duluth right. i found this out secondhand went to duluth because he told people i would make him stay home and i would try oh. to run his life and i just started oh. I just started laughing because I I told him once I found that out I said I I would have broke a land speed record driving your butt over to one of those dorms <laughs> right and I told him I said I wouldn't guarantee that you would be knocking on my door asking me for money more than me trying to hunt you down so right 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 can I get five dollars do you got ten dollars I can get. <laughs> Right. But no. Um, so you retire and then you just took it easy for a while or you just yes. said, okay. Yes. I, there was some senior firefighters, a chief that mm -hmm. when I retired and he asked me, he was our district chief and he asked me, is your wife still working? I said, yeah. He said, well, make sure you're never sitting down when she's when she comes in the house so <laughs> okay said, okay yeah that sounds good so the first year uh, first eight months i was up cleaning everything cooking i i always cook now right <laughs> but cooking everything you know doing everything make sure she's okay you know when she came everything's okay when you came home then winter rolls in <laughs> I start sitting in the chair, <laughs> sitting in the chair, chair, chair. And then uh, when she came home, I wasn't getting up, doing, didn't, wasn't finishing things. Doing, <laughs> and I could see it in sensing in her. And we used to have a dog. His name was Devo. And he loved this little uh, rabbit. He would carry right. it with him all the time. He would get up and go to the door when she came and when the last straw was 
she came in the door and she says, you haven't done anything today, have you? <laughs> I said, you can't even get up and greet me. At least the dog got up and greeted me. <laughs> so that, she said, you're going to have to find something to do. <laughs> and so what was the next thing you got yourself into? That was a bus driver. Because <laughs> I figured... It would be, well, initially I started out just driving in the uh, afternoon. So yeah. in a couple of hours, I would be out of the house when she came home, you know. <laughs> Plus she so had, that kind of covered me there. Right. You had experience driving a, you know, large fire truck, so driving a bus was no big deal. Yeah. I just like it. I like driving. but. Right. Driving a fire truck is a lot easier, I would say, than having 40 kids bouncing off the wall <laughs> you as you're trying to go down the road. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, how did you manage that? Well, I whew, it was tough. The first year that I drove the bus, I drove for this uh, Russian school in Minnetonka. So half the kids didn't speak English. And then I those, oh, I don't want to, I'm not going to say the name of the school, but those were the worst kids that <laughs> would ever be, be, have to drive with. Because it was a long drive. We would start out in Minnetonka and end up by uh, Maple Grove. Uh, uh, what's that uh, little strip mall up there? You know. Yeah. Off of 94. So those kids were on there. The last kid would get off probably an hour and a half after we started. Wow. And I think I would drive almost 60 miles, you know, in the loop mm -hmm. one way, you know, when I finished the loop. And those kids were, oh, they were just horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really pressing on me that first year. And to manage it, some of the kids I try to develop friendships with, you know. Right. And then some of them I just, I didn't talk to them. I just, <laughs> you know, told them to sit down, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was the other alternative. <laughs> so that was tough. Uh, no, then, no bus aid? No bus aid. I'm on there with 40 Russian kids that don't really... They're kind of, a lot of them are recent immigrants, so mm -hmm. they don't understand, you know, the American culture or right. the do's and don'ts. And then they're just off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> so that was hard to manage there. Yeah, I can. It wasn't that hard, you know. Right. Because I would just get them home and get them, you know, get off, get <laughs> off, you know, whatever. <laughs> I try to work them with the school, you know, but the school, I don't think they really wanted to do much. They probably had enough problems. So they're like, you know, here's the kids, take them home. <laughs> and then the parents, some of them would claim they didn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't really tell them anything. So, but it was a lot of fun. It was challenging, but it was, whew. <laughs> There's more to it than what I'm telling. <laughs> right. I can imagine. But you didn't stay with that one school, I take it. No. I finally went back. I found a route 
that uh, is out of district for Minnetonka. The kids, there's probably about 20 kids in the morning and 10 in the afternoon. And we just kind of weave our way out to Eden Prairie and back. And those kids are a lot more well-behaved and stuff like that. So it's a lot longer route than most of the bus routes, but right. it's more manageable. Um, so do you um, consider yourself a hero in, in either case, dealing with young kids or being a fireman? No. I, I don't like uh, I don't like to identify myself as like a hero. Like I, I wanted something out of it. Right. A lot of your actions kind of go, especially with the fire department, kind of go unsung, you know. And it's uh, you know it's kind of frowned upon on the fire department when I was first started out. You know, to gloat, you know, right. oh, we did this and that, you know, whatever, or take an award that. Eh, you made in that you kind of maybe referred to. <laughs> There's been times like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, okay, in one incident, somebody got an award and we were there with them. <laughs> it was like, how did you get the award that we did do, you know? But, you know, I'm humble on that end. And then, you know, on the, on the bus side, no, it, it's it requires, you know, concentration and, you know, being safe and making sure the kids get home safely and to the parents. And then, you know, the parents will recognize that. And then when Christmas time coming around on my route, <laughs> they give you a little, uh, you know, card with a thank you in it. Right. Well, and that's cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I understand that I worked in a couple of schools. Uh, parents are always appreciative of people that show interest in their kids. Right, right. And so then you do that for a while, but you have to tell me how did you decide to, well, when did bowling come into play in your life, which you <laughs> talked me into one year? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, we missing you this year, but uh, bowling's, always been a big part of my mother's side's family. Mm-hmm. They, my uh, grandfather uh, bowled, and uh, back then in the 50s and the 60s, he was able to, it was rare to get a 300, you know, because of the way, you know, see the way the balls move now. Right. React and stuff, and, and stuff like that. He was one of the few to get a 300 back then that mm. strikes every frame right uh and then uh my grandmother on my mom's side bowled too and that, <laughs> funny thing about it my grandfather and grandmother were divorced but they bowled on the same team <laughs> with his new wife my you know my right. grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> so bowling kept them together my mom bowls. She talked my dad into bowling. And uh, my mom's 87 right now, and she still bowls. Yes, I can testify and, to that because I've seen her. <laughs> so. And, and uh, I started as a kid. I bowled in a couple of leagues up through, I think, my sophomore year in high school. 
they didn't have bowling teams back then outside of the, uh, you know, the bowling alleys and mm-hmm. stuff. So I kind of gave it up. And then I bowled a little bit. No, I stopped then. And then I was going to pick it up again. Once I got on the fire department, they had a bowling team, but I, I just didn't make it. And then the kids had all their activities and stuff. And so right. now I, uh, the last seven years, I got back into bowling. Yeah. And, uh, and picked it up there. It's a good sport. Yeah. You know, it doesn't you never... require. No, go ahead. It, it doesn't require a lot of, you know, strength. Like people think like getting the ball down there fast or whatever <laughs> like that. No, but it, you, you know, it's mental. It's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's a lot of mental into the game. <laughs> well, you and never, you never talked about it in college. So, uh, no. But then you talked me into it uh, a year or so yeah. ago, <laughs> and we yeah. we were on a team, and I think I had the worst average in the league, which was eighty nine. But that eighty nine helped the team because I got right. better, except for the right. one night where my high was a fifty five <laughs> in three right. games. It's like I like I told you, I'll tell everyone else, it's the. The average, the house bowling, you know, mm-hmm. is uh, league bowling. You have an average, and it totals up to like two, uh, 220 points. So if you have a handicap or, you know, your your average is 120, you're getting those 180 points right. extra, which is an advantage. So you don't always want teams that have all good bowlers, and you don't want teams that have all bad bowlers. So. It's a mix. And plus, I like bowling with people as a way of, you know, having fun. So that's why we brought it on. I was like, hey, John, you want to try try bowling? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're having fun. Come on. (laughs) Uh, I enjoyed the first year. Um, It was was an interesting uh, bowling alley and also – like I said, they had the average of 89 and <laughs> threw a, one night through 54, 55, and 59, and we dropped from first to fourth because oh. I sucked. <laughs> but we also won the league, though. Right. Remember? We did win. Yep, we're in the championship. We're in the championship bowl bowl off, and uh, the first game, I think I I, I bowled 107. Right. And uh, the guy that ran the league stopped by and said, well, you guys got an outside chance. The second game, I threw like a 125, and he said, "Right, you guys have got a chance. And right. the third game, I, I bowled 155. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, I throw the straightest of straight balls or right. <laughs> no matter where they end up, they were on a straight line from somewhere. Right. If they were in the gutter, they started off in the gutter, basically. <laughs> so I don't. Yeah, we we had a lot of fun there. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, and by the way, my average is two oh six. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Just yes, had to put that out. Yeah. There. <laughs> I don't like, want everyone thinking we were bowling fifty fives a night. No. <laughs> No, he was carrying the team. Matter of fact, he wasn't supposed to be on the team, but because 
his team fell apart, and then one right. guy on our team disappeared, and so they right. they combined us together. So right, right. <laughs> so, what then from bowling got you into your latest venture, which is uh, bowling shirts? Shirts, yeah. Bowling shirts. Yeah. What got you into that? Well, uh, we started out. I'm in this. Uh, traveling bowling league with my mother and daughter. They're called the Twin City Bowlers Guild. Mm -hmm. They're one of the oldest uh, all-black or well, mostly black uh, organization bowling leagues or uh, clubs in the country. And it was started basically because uh, blacks or African-Americans back then weren't allowed to bowl in certain tournaments or bowling alleys. So they challenged Milwaukee to a contest, mm -hmm. and that started the what they call North Central Region uh, Bowling League, a guild. And now it comprises of teams from Cincinnati or leagues, uh, guilds from uh, Detroit, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, St. Louis, where you're from. Right. And... Uh, a couple of other, the Des Moines and uh, the Quad Cities or so. And that's been going on since 1958 to this present time. And we have about, we're up to almost 60 members here. And Detroit's like 100 plus and Cincinnati's like 100 plus too. And what started me with the bowling shirts is we had a contest uh, designing our next uh bowling shirt and i i designed a couple of them but unbeknownst to me is that the woman that <laughs> was running the contest wanted her shirt to win <laughs> no the fix was in huh <laughs> so the fix was in but people like this design that i did it, it yeah. was uh it has uh it's a black shirt uh, with a, a a polo collar with a zipper, and it had uh, the kente cloth going down the side, one mm -hmm. side, and on the sleeves, and on the back, I designed this big logo uh, in gold with uh, Minnesota and these stars. It was like fifty stars that I had circling, it. and then we had a. a People like that. They're like, how did that shirt not win? You know, <laughs> right. and they said, okay, well, why don't I uh, find out if we can make it? Because not every tournament, you part of the tournament, you have to wear the team shirt or the guild shirt. Mm -hmm. You can wear individual shirts or so. So there's doubles and there's mixed doubles. So people were like, can you make that shirt? So I contacted this one company, bowling company. That makes shirts, and they were they were able to make it for me, but the price, you know, I wasn't getting any wholesale price, so I wasn't really making any money on right. You know, it's just providing the shirt, and then we went out of town with the shirts, and people were like, "Man, I really like that shirt." So I was like, "Well, hmm, I need to figure. I can't." 
let this other company take my designs and make all my money, you know, right. money off of me. I was like, I got to find someone who can make my shirt. So first, I have to be honest, I started out looking for, because I wanted it made in America, because I'm an old union guy mm -hmm. or whatever. So I was trying to find made in America sublimation companies, but they were more like, well, we got to make a profit too. So, right. you know, to be at a reasonable price point because I don't have, you know, a lot of, you know, people don't know who I am. I can't overcharge them. I couldn't charge them the price that some of them are going at. Right. You know, I wouldn't get my foot in at all. So I <laughs> found, looked on the internet, took me about a, a month or so and I, I didn't find a company in, in China, and then I had to convince myself, well, <laughs> if I look at my clothes, 90% of them say made in China. Right. So, <laughs> no one's fussing on them, so I contacted them, and they gave me a good wholesale price. Uh, they have excellent fabric. You know, the material that they do, this is full supplement. It's not like a heat press. Right. It's uh you know, the shirt is, the ink is in the shirt. And right. it's, you know, the design, you can just go buck wild on what you want the design <laughs> yeah. to look. Yeah. So I started out doing that. And people were just every week, and we're basically pretty much just word of mouth. People just ask, me, ask the people who have shirts, oh, man, how, oh, where did you get that shirt? You know, because... What we specialize ourselves in is we can do one-offs. We don't require you to do, you know, a, a, a minimum quantity. We can do one shirt, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and the company I'm working with or the manufacturer allows me the latitude to do that. So I can make one shirt, two shirts. I made up to 50, 60 shirts, you know. It, it, the price for me is pretty much the whole same. same. And then we get choices of fabric. You know, uh, I can alter the sizes, too. They give me that. And I, I don't upcharge people on if you buy a small right. or a 5X. My prices are all the same because, for one, I get the biggest smiles once people see, you know, the final design. And then I, I uh, did kind of self-taught on... Uh, Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop, and I've learned that way, and I've come up with some crazy ideas. You know, people, one shirt, one guy said, uh, we have a guy in the Southern League, he was bowling so well, he wanted to give him a shirt. He said, I said, well, what do you want on it? What you? Said, I don't know. We call him Godzilla because he's just been <laughs> destroying the lanes. Right. I was like... I said, you don't have no idea past Godzilla. He said, no, just Godzilla. Come up with something with Godzilla. So <laughs> what I did is I, I found a picture of Godzilla, and I kind of went over it again and recreated right. it. And then I put, I found a picture of him on Facebook. And I took that, and I cartooned it and put it in there, and... He's standing there with Godzilla with a with a glowing bowling ball. <laughs> Godzilla's in the shadows behind him. 
Yeah. And that that's the shirt that just took off. Now I'm doing about five different leagues. Wow. Of of just bowling shirts locally. Mm-hmm. Well, for people who don't know, sublimation, I know this from my equipment manager days, sublimation is a highly used form in um, uniforms these days. Um, uh, I've had, over the years, soccer uniforms at the University of Minnesota that you look at the outside and it's maroon and gold, and you look at the inside and it's totally white. <laughs> right, And right. people go... How is that possible? Well, the <laughs> colors laser, as Alan was kind of explaining, the colors lasered onto the white fabric, and in some cases, uh, there's also a, 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 and I can never remember the other uh, one, uh, the name of the other one, where they laser it actually onto paper and then transfer, right. then transfer it to the white cloth. But right. I. Either way, the white, <laughs> the inside is white, and I laugh because right. till this day I go and watch uh, go for softball play, and they wear maroon pants, and it always looks like everybody's like rubbed their butt in chalk. <laughs> right. And somebody finally asked me, "Is like, dude, what's wrong with their pants? They're all." I said, "No." I said, "The problem is the inside of the pants is white. It's not maroon." So right. when they get in them and they stretch them, right. the white starts to come through the color. I said, right. I said, that's just, I said unfortunately, they weren't fitted right. And so right. Uh, they right. weren't, manu- they were, not that they weren't fitted right. They weren't manufactured completely right. correctly. And so they didn't take an inch out of the rise because the, uh-huh. uh, because most companies use a, a, a male pattern, and right. for women, you need to take an inch out of ride, uh, the rise so it fits right for the on the hips and whatnot. But I'm getting too right. deep. I'm getting way too deep there. Right. But you, um, so you got in. Uh, you you're doing that. You're doing gangbusters and what. And now you're doing embroidery. Right. What got you into making that next step? Uh, it was a lot of requests because I I had I also do golf sublimation golf shirts, mm-hmm. and uh, there's several people you know golfers or whatever that that have been buying them. Especially last year was our first year doing the golf shirts, and they always say, "Well, do you have a hat?" And I was like, "No, you don't do embroidery too." I was like, "No, I don't do embroidery." So that's why I got it in embroidery. So I can do the hats. But in the meantime, I haven't really done hats. I've been doing jackets because a lot of people have been right. requesting jackets and 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 uh, t-shirts and and stuff like that. So that was a that was a huge learning curve that I'm still on. But it's, things are coming out pretty pretty good. And you do it yourself at home. I I, uh. I don't I I do it at home, but I haven't. What there's a part that I didn't know about mm-hmm. embroidery is the digitizing. Right. And, and that's very important. And I, I have the software and I'm doing just pretty much names and small objects, but I do outsource the digitizing. I have a guy who's in Brazil, believe it or not, but he <laughs> does excellent quality on digitizing. 
so that it sets up exactly right and it comes out smooth and perfect. So how in the heck are you in these days and times of uh, supply chain management and, you know, right now the the university can't get hold of things like compostable bags and (laughs) feminine hygiene products because there's a world (laughs) shortage. Um, How the heck are you getting your product in? I've been lucky. Uh, Sansmar is local. They're uh, an apparel Mm -hmm. company out here in um, Shakopee. That, that has quantities, you know, huge quantity. I guess they're nationwide or so. They have several different warehouses. Right. So that, that helps me here. And I, I just check the inventory on what I want. I, I try not to get too fancy on that. <laughs> right. Then, then I have a couple of other, uh, I have a new, I can't remember their name, but uh, they're out of, I think, Oregon, but or Northern California, they make excellent golf shirts so i i I have a i have i get the wholesale from them which helps those are just beautiful shirts there i haven't been able to work with them yet and then i have uh for all you know our gangsters a little whatever (laughs) bikers or whatever right i have a pro club uh a wholesaler there too so I'm able to, I, I don't stay with one, you know, wholesaler. Right. I try to spread it out so that, you know, if something's short or whatever someone needs, then I have a, a little bit more advantage. And then I have, I'm big on quality too. You know, I like thick, you know, and mm-hmm. well quality. I like champion, you know, right. Nike, if I can get it, you know, uh, the pro club is excellent. They're, they're thick, uh, T-shirts, and and then this company out of uh, Northern California. So that's what I always look for quality. And my mom always comes over and she looks at the, she was, her family, you know, sold a lot and were seamstress. Uh, So she always looks at the scene. She'll say, yep, this is good. This is good quality. (laughs) Well, that's good to have. Yeah. So (laughs) I, I pride myself on that quality there. So we're able to get what we can. We don't, and we don't hold a lot of inventory either. Right. So, because you know, that, that kind of defeats the purpose for us as of now. So we've been doing well there. We're just now trickling out, you know, the embroidering. So, and then my, you know, my daughters want me to go faster, but I'm <laughs> of course at they myself. do. I'm one person, so I can only handle so much, you know, as, and I've never been a small businessman <laughs> right. So I, I don't want to go too fast or get too big too fast because it'll be overwhelming for myself. So, so uh, uh, what the struggles or successes have you f- kind of figured out from – from being a small businessman? Uh, the successes for me personally is, is just the joy when people get the, uh, the item, especially the custom supplementations um, shirts we do. Uh, and then just the expansion that we're getting, you know, mostly local. Right. 
late recently. We finally kind of expand. We have customers now from Kansas City and Detroit and Cincinnati. And this is all by word of mouth, you know. That's my greatest success, just seeing how <laughs> right, the business cool. is maturing. Right. Uh, the downfall is just the learning curve, you know. Mm-hmm. I uh, one time uh, made the mistake. I did a large group of golfers, and the person that was uh, setting up, you know, the the stuff it wasn't it wasn't on our end, but right. <laughs> but. He would not correct the names <laughs> when we asked him 40 times. And I should have just stopped and said, you know, we're not going to do it. Right. Because it may look us bad. But he kept saying, no, they're okay. They're okay. Just just do them. They're okay. And I was looking at them. One person was a, a professional football player that we all know. <laughs> and his name was misspelled. Right. And you could Google that name. And we were like... Ah, this is not right. That one I did change. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of them, we were like, ah, this is not how you spell this name. This is kind of phonetic. But then we was just like, well, okay, we kept saying, well, well we're under a time constraint. We got to get this done. And I was like, okay, if you're okay in it, okay. Well, they went out and I knew they were wrong. I should have never let them go out. And then we get a call back, and a guy's complaining about everything about the shirt and the names and all that. And we could have easily remedied that by just not either not doing it or, you know, just being adamant about those names. That's one of the biggest experiences that that we learned. And but we uh the other what was good was a. We knew some of the other golfers in the group, mm-hmm. and they contacted us because they said, "Oh, that guy's—he just nitpicks everything. We're okay. You did what you can. We understand what happened. We're okay with it. It's not your problem." So that—that that was good because it was hard, you know, starting out, and it was like one of our first big projects. And I was like, "Oh man, we messed this up." And, you know, <laughs> you get that feeling, right? Like, Okay, I'm gonna quit. Forget this. <laughs> no, never doing this again. No, but, you can't. You can't quit. I, yeah. I've had those moments with this podcast. <laughs> I've had that those moments with the glove business. Right. And, you, know, you know, just uh, don't quit. And you know, as you guys kept pushing me to to reinvest, I got the uh, leather sewing machine last week. So. Oh yay! <laughs> So I can well, s- stop trying to hand sew leather and I can do it on a machine now. So Well, good, because we have some now. We're talking partnership. We have some leathers coming up. Uh-oh. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> have someone sew on leather. <laughs> uh, uh, with the success that you've got so far, have you kicked yourself for not doing this sooner? No, no, because it, it's all about timing. I, I was, I had no awareness of of this industry, you know, as far as sublimation or or bowling shirts, you mm-hmm. know. 
You know, I remember bowling shirts being cotton and they were hand embroidered, you know. Right. Those were the last ones I had. And, then, you know, I, if you get out there, if anyone goes to the bowling alley, some of these leagues, you'll see the craziest bowling shirts, you know, just like, you know, at the time golfers were wearing all the crazy, you know, shirts and hats and right. pants and stuff like that. It's just like that. It, it, they all kind of seek to be independents. So there's a pretty good market on that end. So, no, I, I didn't know. I wasn't aware of it at all. I just happened into it, you know. It wasn't something that I really chose to do. do. <laughs> well. Plus, it keeps Teresa off my back. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you told me a while back you have a jersey for me, and I – yeah, I, I gotta get that one of these days. But yes. also, and I have some. I got about fifteen blank T-shirts. I gotta get to you that uh, for either the podcast name or the glove. Maybe I'll just split it in half and do <laughs> half one and half the other. But um, uh, speaking of that, how can people get in touch with you to uh, if they're interested in such things? And you don't. You probably could do. Do these uh, shirts that because the one I saw the one that you had made from not the one you had made for me, but the other ones that you made just like that one. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And these could actually easily be worn as baseball and softball jerseys for adults in the summer and whatnot. How can somebody right. get a hold of you? Well, we have a website. <laughs> We're, we're still working on it. I'm right. needing the assistance of my daughters to help me, but, but it is functional and functionable and, and you can reach us. And that is L I N K Z A R T dot com. That's links with a Z. Art. Right. <laughs> or like I said, it's a lot of a word of mouth. I don't know if you want me to give out my phone number, but, you we give out whatever ever you want for your business. We have a we do have a business line. It's uh six one two seven five seven nine four nine two. That a lot of people contact me through that way, especially the bowlers. I would say there are people that are not very computer savvy. <laughs> so they'll call me in a heartbeat. So a lot of, I get a lot of contact through that. So that's there. Links art is that dot yep. com? Yes, with a Z. Yep. And then the phone number again is 612 757 9492. That's our business line. All right. And we do a lot of texting back and forth, a lot of initially on designs and stuff like that. That works easy for us. Right. Well, it, it's been, it's it's always weird. You've known I've known you for close to thirty years plus years, right? Well, it's yeah, it's more than thirty years, almost thirty five years, and I still learn something about you. That's the interesting thing about talking to people on this podcast. No matter how long you've known somebody, you right. always learn something new. Uh, today's guest has been Alan Link Johnson. That's why it's called Links with the Z art right. com. Here, 
here on the JV's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please, Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. So why can't get around it? So low, you can't get under it. So high, you can't get over it. You can't get over it. This is a chance. And we're back to wrap up the latest episode of JB's Low Tech Podcast. It was good to catch up with my college roommate, Alan, Alan Link Johnson, to talk about the many hats that he's worn over the years and how he's recreated himself and continue to be successful in life. As we continue to uh, live on this Moyo coil, uh, please tell a friend to uh, check me out, to listen, to maybe even give me f- feedback on at my uh Email J-A-Y-B-E-E, J-A-Y-B-E-E, 780 at Comcast.com. Until next time, thanks for listening here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. J-B is my name and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. Right on. Negro, black, African-American, black, black, black. Django, J. B. Damn, Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know. J. B. Our great Negro sex machine.